This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. On today's show, Dr. Linda Porter and I discuss Queen Mary I, Catherine Parr, Mary Queen of Scots, Charles I and his children, as well as the many mistresses and illegitimate children of Charles II. If you think the Tudors are fascinating, then you'll love to learn about the Stuarts as well. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudors Dynasty podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most, whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian. I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank the folks who became new patrons since the last episode. Sam F., Andrea, Fiona O., Crystalyn W., Leslie F., Eleanor G., Lisa B., Michaela Z., and Bonnie J. Thank you so much for your support. Your support and the support of all of my patrons has meant the world to me. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty and click Become a Patron. And with that, Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rebecca. So you have truly covered a wide range of royal history. So why don't we just start from the beginning? What was it that originally pulled you into the world of the Tudors? necessity, I think, would be the honest answer to that. If I can very briefly explain how I got into this in the first place. Um, Many years ago, I lived and worked in New York for nearly 10 years. I met my husband there. He's originally from Arkansas. My daughter was born in New York. Uh, I was at the time an associate professor of history at various uh, universities and colleges in New York. I should say some more distinguished than others, to be truthful. The one I enjoyed most was Fordham University, where I taught 19th century French history. Uh, and that, I think, had the best quality of students and teachers. Uh, we came uh, to live in, in the UK. My husband had not lived here before. And I needed to, to work full time uh, and to get sufficient money, really, for us. So I left the academic world and for nearly 25 years, I worked in corporate communications uh, for a large telecommunications company here, uh, eventually ending up as a senior manager uh, until I got fed up with the corporate world and the constant infighting. And I decided I would take what was a very early retirement and go back to history, to, to writing and researching. I had always wanted to try and write a book. I got myself a literary agent, um, whom I've been with ever since. Uh, And initially, we tried a number of 18th and 19th century topics because that was my... Originally, I was a historian of the French Revolution, and I'm hoping to get back there with my next book. Um, These didn't really pan out. Uh, And as you probably know, if you are uh, serious about getting uh, taken on by a major publisher then you have to spend up to six months um, doing uh, research and preparing a proposal. Uh, And if you try and do this too many times, you get discouraged. And I was on the point of giving it up altogether when one afternoon I thought, well, my business background has helped me understand what publishers are looking for, which I have to say I think is not true of a great many historians still, especially those who are aspirational but perhaps not very well trained. And I thought, well, I really need women like reading about women, and it's women that buy these sort of books. And I need someone who's important, not a minor figure, a major figure, a queen. And it suddenly came to me that there hadn't been anything recently on Mary Tudor and that she had all the elements that publishers love, Uh, you know, uh, an abusive parent, um, sibling rivalry, a difficult marriage, Uh, So I wrote a proposal and my agent said, we can sell this. And he did. We sold it to the highest bidder. So that was how I came to write about Mary Tudor. I had done Tudor courses at university, but I was not originally a Tudor historian. And I'm quite glad to have been accepted as such by people whose opinion I value in this uh, particular area. And uh, she was a good choice. Um, There hadn't been much written about her in about 20 years But there had been an awful lot of academic research. And it was really that that I was able to 
repackage, if you like, for a more general audience. Uh, I had no particular view on Mary when I started to write about her. I neither liked nor disliked her. But in um, researching her life, I came to have a great deal of respect for her and to realise that she is probably still with King John, the most maligned of, of all English monarchs. So that's how I came to Mary. So February is the anniversary month of Mary's birthday, and we see post all over social media, articles written about her. And generally in the comments, people are calling her Bloody Mary. And they're saying, you know, she burned 300 Protestants. And all of these stories start coming out to put her in a bad light. What do you think the biggest myth or misconception about Mary is? I think the biggest myth probably is that she never achieved anything and was a you know a, a ghastly sad pathetic little failure uh some of the posts i've seen on on social media recently in this month have been much more positive about mary and i have to say that i think american readers with an interest in the tudors have more open mind about her than people in in this country do still uh, i i i think if you take the view that that her reign and her life was some sort of disastrous miscalculation, uh, that she was kind of doomed from the outset to be this um, cruel queen of, of historical myth. Uh, I, I think that is the biggest misconception, and it's born out of um, the standard uh, debates between Bloody Mary and Good Queen Bess, and the truth about both of them is much more nuanced and, and different from, from what people think. Uh, uh, I've recently been reading and reviewing a new book on Mary's marriage to Philip, um, which is probably one of the least known episodes in, in English history. I would bet you money that if I stopped 10 people on the streets of the town in which I live, uh, only one of them, if, if that would know that we ever had a king called Philip, uh, uh, they would be amazed. And then they'd be affronted, of course, to learn that he was Spanish. Um, but the, this, this new book by Dr. Alexander Sampson from University College London uh, really goes into a great deal of detail about their marriage and its background. Um, and it points out that uh, in Spain, Mary is still revered as, as a sort of uh, able, pious Renaissance monarch. And much to my amazement, I discovered reading this book that there is a, um, a, a metro station um, uh, in Madrid called Maria Tudor. And I can assure you that if anyone dared to suggest such a concept for the London underground here, there would be a national outcry. What do you feel is the one thing that people don't know about Mary? things that they don't know um because really you know this this woman's image is so incredibly negative i think not helped by the portrait that you probably know of the antonis moore portrait in which she does look like a bad-tempered old hag uh i mean that that why it was painted that way is a good question which we don't have time to go into but uh, i i think well firstly most people don't know that mary was a very keen and fashionable dresser that she loved to gamble, though that she wasn't particularly successful at it, from what one can gather, um, and that she was a, a very talented musician, as were most of the Tudors, and that she really rather liked to have a good laugh. Um, she apparently had a considerable sense of humour and, uh, you know, enjoyed uh, her life as queen, much more than most people recognise, I think. And a new historical novelist has come out about her, which, in fairness to the writer, I haven't read, in, in which, you know, I, I think you, from, from what the author has said, it perpetuates the sort of H.M. Prescott view of the, a terribly sad little woman. But I, I view that as quite condescending to Mary. I mean, th this was a well-educated woman with much more political sense than she's ever credited for, who'd survived the most difficult and trying of times, uh, and who, who left her sister, her ungrateful sister, it has to be said, um, a, a throne uh, and the possibility that a woman could govern, um, which was a major achievement in itself. But I, I think the thing most people would be surprised to know about Mary would be to view her as a, you know, an inveterate gambler and player at cards. 
Now, you have really seemed to bypass popular trends when it comes to your books. Normally, we see, you know, Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. Your second book was on Henry VIII's last wife, Catherine Parr, whom I love. But she is often not the first listed when one is asked who their favorite consort of Henry is. What attracted you to Catherine's story? Um, I... To be honest, again, I, I don't precise. well, in this case, I do precisely remember. I was going out for a walk and I was trying to think of where I might go with my next book. And Catherine Parr's name just cropped, sort of popped into, into my head. Um, one of the things you have to bear in mind is that it, it, it's easy enough, perhaps, on social media to um, constantly revisit um popular uh, monarchs and consorts and things of that sort. But publishers want you to find something slightly different or they won't publish you. And so uh, there hadn't, again, been a, a popular history of Catherine Parr for a very, very long time. I, I mean, in, in the sense that I wrote it, there probably hadn't been one. I had always uh, thought she was a rather interesting lady. I mean, to be truthful, I suppose my first interest in her was in reading as a girl Jean Plady's uh, historical fiction novel, The Sixth Wife. Uh, and I, I liked that book. Um, and it's grossly inaccurate, as some historical fiction is. But I thought, I mean, her story is also a very dramatic one. Uh, and she is uh, the most married queen consort in English history. She was only married twice less than Henry VIII. Uh, and she has this image, as you well know, uh, which I think most people of my age grew up with of this this sort of uh, matronly, very proper lady who who uh, spent most of her marriage to Henry VIII on her knees, cleaning his ulcerated legs. And of course, this is a very long way from the truth. Uh, Catherine Parr was actually slightly younger than Anne Boleyn was when she married Henry VIII. And queens did not go down on their hands and knees um, padding at their husband's legs. Um, they might have called in someone else to do it, but they certainly didn't do it themselves. And so I, I thought this image of a, a, a sort of almost middle age, which Catherine wasn't, she wasn't quite 31, uh, but an almost middle-aged woman um, who, who was a a kind of dutiful stepmother to three rather difficult children uh, and who um, spent most of her time nursing an ancient, um, cranky and, and diseased husband uh, was, was worth revisiting. Do we know when that misconception of her um, being a nursemaid um, started? Um, it might, well, as many things do, I can't say this for sure, it, it might start um, uh, with uh, some of the 19th century Victorian writers uh, about uh, Queens of England. Agnes Strickland springs to mind. However, I can't remember exactly whether Agnes Strickland did give this view of, of uh, Catherine Parr, but I, I think it, it does date back to that time. I mean, a, a lot of a lot of the myths and misconceptions about history do date back to the Victorian era, actually, when they often had a vested interest, you know, in presenting uh, a very worthy lady as opposed to a rather attractive uh, and, and sprightly youngish woman um, who was probably clever enough to have thought her way through uh, some of the many obvious pitfalls of marrying Henry VIII. Thank you for clarifying that, because I feel like people who are new to learning about the Tudors don't understand that the Victorian historian's work that's put out there is not necessarily 100% truthful. Oh, no, it, well, uh, I mean, each generation looks at people in the past differently. And to that extent, I think what all of us do as historians is anachronistic to some degree. It's bound to be. Uh, but, uh, you know, one, one can actually look at the record. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things about Catherine Parr, of course, is that in her correspondence with her fourth husband, Thomas Seymour, we have some of the very earliest love letters written by people of their rank um, that have survived in English, uh, which is in itself a, a point of considerable interest. Uh, so I, I, I think people need to question where these kind of um, established views of the past originate from. And one of the things I like about um, 
social media. I mean, you, you still do get the various people banging on about how Mary Tudor was Bloody Mary and burned 300 people, which carefully overlooks the large number of people Elizabeth executed for various reasons during her reign. Uh, but but it does seem to me that, that there is more of a, a series of fora now, if you like, for uh, reconsidering people's preconceptions and misconceptions about the past. And it's our job as historians to um, uh, to, to question these and, and try and uh, develop and justify views that we have. I have another question for you about the perspective. One of the things that I'll admit I've been accused of on a couple occasions is looking at an event in history from modern eyes. How do you wrap your brain around looking at it from, say, a 16th century perspective? Well, it isn't easy. Um, but what I do is to try and go back to the original records. Uh, and one of the most important things that my first editor for, for the book on Mary Tudor taught me was that I, when I started to write it, I, I would sort of paraphrase and put in my own words um, quotations from um, people's letters and, and other you know, acts of parliament, anything that had survived. And he said, don't do this. You should let people in the past speak for themselves. Uh, and I think that is a very, very important lesson that I was taught and, and what I've tried to do. Uh, it, it does mean that um, people who can't understand the difference between a historical novel and a nonfiction history, of which I am sad to say I think there are a growing number, uh, do uh, make comments like, I can't understand the dialogue and things like that. Um, <laughs> one has to learn to, to live with that, I think. Um, I, I, that's what I try and do, because if you have some understanding of what people were talking about at the time, what their preoccupations were, how their lives were formed, what their interests were. Uh, you, you get um, somewhat closer, I think, uh, to a better understanding. I mean, I, I am waiting with interest Hilary Mantel's final novel in the um, Thomas Cromwell series, which I gather is even longer than the others. And I uh, I loved Hilary Mantel's book on the French Revolution, A Place of Greater Safety, but I have not been personally that taken with her Cromwell novels, partially because they are hugely long, uh, and also because to me her Cromwell is a 21st century man. He doesn't think like a 16th century man would have done. And that's okay because it's fiction, but it isn't okay if people genuinely assume that that, that was how people thought in the, in the 16th century. I mean, their, their world was framed differently from ours. Um, the importance of religion in everyday life, even if some of it was lip service for perhaps a considerable number of people, is still something which the secular West doesn't understand, I don't think. Um, they were profoundly ignorant about medical, scientific, and all sorts of other things, and still quite steeped in, in superstition. And although, of course, they were like us to the degree that they loved, lusted, um, got ill, um, wanted money, wanted power, wanted privilege, though many of them were literally, of course, um, prepared to risk their necks for those latter things, I am always at pains to tell people that the Tudors were not just like us, but in fancy dress. They are early modern people. They are not like us. Coming back to Catherine Parr and your research on her, was there anything that you discovered in your research that really surprised you? I'm not sure that there was anything that hugely surprised me. One of the uh, questions that still remains unanswered and, and which you had alluded to when you sent me your questions beforehand is the question of whether she... Um, uh, had expected to be made regent for Edward VI after Henry VIII's death. Um, there are some, uh, a couple of documents in the National Archives, um, but they're not dated. So it's a bit difficult to know <clears throat> precisely when they were written, which, do, which are signed Catherine the Queen Regent and appear to have been 
uh, signed very shortly after Henry's death. But as I said, there's no conclusive proof of that. Uh, and the uh, eminent Tudor historian John Guy here said to me when I raised this with him, he said, I don't think you're going to find any killer documents. Most of us historians spend our time looking for killer documents and they're few and far between, particularly on major figures. I, I think uh, what I did uh, come to uh, feel about Catherine Parr was that I liked her. I, I think I would have liked her as a person I might have been grossly disappointed if we'd ever met. Uh, I find it hard to like, feel that way about any of Henry's other wives, really. But she seems to me to be the most approachable, um, to have had a, a genuinely um, caring nature. She had a fierce temper on her as well upon occasion. But she, uh, I think she was an... an interesting um, woman with um, deeply held religious beliefs, which didn't really develop into Protestantism until after she'd married Henry. Uh, and I, I, I also think to modernise, she's actually one of the more attractive of Henry's wives. I mean, when you look at portraits of his wives, you are left wondering what on earth he saw in them in most cases. I think Jane Seymour in that Holbein portrait looks incredibly mean and bad-tempered and has a nasty little double chin. Um, uh, and with the, the others um, look varying degrees of, of not what would be considered attractive to modernise, I don't think, whereas... Catherine Parr certainly looks queenly. Um, she loved uh, fashion as much as her stepdaughter Mary did. And I, I think she comes across perhaps as just more human than the others, to me, at any rate. I'm sure many others would disagree. I definitely agree with you on the portraits. Uh, going back to Catherine of Aragon, how beautiful they said she was, but her portraits do not show it. Well, now, of course, she, she did put on weight uh, with all those pregnancies. Um, and she, there is one, the one portrait of her as a very young girl, um, which shows her with the, the red hair, which was not uncommon amongst um, the, the uh, Spanish royal family, uh, in, in which she does look quite sweet. But I think she was also very short. And, of course, as successive pregnancies took a toll on her health and figure, um, she didn't look quite so sweet as she had done subsequently. <laughs> I really hope in the future people don't judge me by my portraits. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, given the, the modern um, absolute obsession with the way people look, it, 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 is, um, it is rather alarming, I agree. But uh, no, and uh, of course, Catherine was, was keen on portraiture. She had Henry's children painted, which they hadn't really been done for a very long time before. Neither Elizabeth nor Mary had been painted. Elizabeth wasn't painted at all in childhood and Mary hadn't been painted since she was six years old. So I think that shows her preoccupation with image. And now that to that degree, these women are quite modern, as indeed are Charles II's mistresses when we get to them a bit later on. Uh, they well understood the importance of image uh, and in, indeed you know, if you were a monarch, you had to really. It, it was one of the few ways in which you could be tangible to your subjects. Yeah, exactly. We have to remember they didn't have television or no. radio back then. No, absolutely not. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier, February is the month that Mary was born, but it's also the month that um, your next book, Mary, Queen of Scots, that was the month that she was executed. So what drew you to her story? I have always had a love of Scottish history, uh, which is fairly unusual for English people, uh, most of whom um, I think their Scottish history runs to Robert the Bruce, the Battle of Bannockburn and Mary, Queen of Scots. And that's it. Uh, I, unfortunately, many Scots don't know their own history very well either, um, which, which is really a shame. Uh, but I, I, I had never fully understood why... Mary, Queen of Scots, came to England in 1568 and um, what, what had brought her there. Uh, and so I thought I would look back um, to her father and grandfather, both of whom are wonderfully interesting figures in their own right, uh, and that I would write a book which uh, showed the long-standing rivalry between the Tudors and the Stuarts and how this played out over much of the 16th century. And I, I, in 
Crown of Thistles, which had the ghastly name of Tudors versus Stuarts in the US. I mean, one, one has no control over what American publishers do with this kind of thing. It made it sound like a football match. Uh, but I, I, um, I wanted to, to tell this story from a wider perspective so that I could understand it. And it hadn't really been done before. before. It, it, it is unusual uh, as a book. Uh, and it, it's actually the favourite of all of my books, my favourite that I've written. And a lot of people seem to like it uh, because it does tell Mary's background in an, an entirely different way uh, than had been done before. What will readers discover about her in your book that might surprise them? I think it depends what prejudices people have about Mary. I suppose the most obvious thing they may discover, because this is a bit like the prejudices against her namesake, Mary Tudor, uh, uh, there is still doubt um, and nothing can be proved conclusively. But uh, I mean, I certainly take the view, as do most historians now, I think, um, that uh, Mary was not in love with Bothwell that she was abducted against her will <clears throat> at a time when she was extremely depressed. I mean, she was a, a woman apparently subject to depression. It seems to have run in the Tudors and the Stuarts, uh, and, and that she was abducted against her will, and if not uh, uh, raped, at least forced into a marriage for which she had no stomach. I mean, and Bothwell had actually formally requested to Mary, he'd asked for her hand and she'd refused it. So if you, if you take the, the, the sort of romantic view that this was a great love story, uh, I think you don't understand Mary and you certainly don't understand Bothwell because he was a nasty, vicious little chancer. Uh, his, his end and death were horrible, but his life before it hadn't been too great. Either one earth women found him attractive or some seem to have. I have no idea because in his portraits, he looks shifty and untrustworthy. Uh, and he certainly had a violent disposition. And I think Mary was afraid of him. I mean, you think about it. If you'd been taken off by force by a group of armed men to Dunbar Castle and then cut off from all of your servants uh, with only your captor's sister uh, for company, um, I, I think you might have been browbeaten into uh, marriage as well, um, because she she had very little um, very little choice in the matter. I think. Is there any contemporary evidence that shows that she was pregnant with twins by Bothwell? Yes, there is. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, I think you know in various of the the, the Scottish papers, uh, I don't mean newspapers, but you know documents of the time. That, that there is reference to it. Um, she, uh, in fact, she might have agreed to marry Bothwell be, uh, eventually because she already feared that she was pregnant by him. Uh, and there's little worse than being um, forced into marriage and actually, you know, being a queen and giving birth out of wedlock. But she certainly did miscarry while imprisoned on Loch Leven, and it does appear to have been twins um, from, from what contemporary sources say. One of the things that plays over and over in my mind is when Mary was sent to live in France as a child because her life was in danger. I'm not a big fan of alternative history, but it does make me wonder, would she have turned Protestant had she stayed in Scotland? I think not, probably. I mean, as you say, we can't know for sure. But you have to remember that, that Protestantism as a, a, a sort of religion of the state came very late to Scotland. Um, uh, nearly, well, it, it came to England as a state religion in, in 1534. It didn't come to Scotland until 1559, um, when the Lords of the Congregation rebelled against Mary's mother, the Regent Mary of Guise. There had been um, Protestant preachers um, uh, in in Scotland, I mean, since the 1520s, since about the same time that they'd first uh, come into England. And certainly there were um, Protestants in Scotland who felt a great deal of affinity with England because they had religious beliefs in common. But uh, if Mary had stayed in Scotland and been brought up entirely under the auspices of her mother, I, I think she would have remained a Catholic. 
I am trying to remember, and I, maybe that I just don't actually know, but as you probably recall, she had various half-siblings alive um, when she returned in 1560. Um, three, actually, one died not too soon afterwards, and two who were with her when um, Darnley and his henchmen burst into the small dining room in Holyrood House and dragged David Rizzio out. Um, and I think they were Catholic too. Uh, but I'm not sure. Um, uh, Catholicism was still the religion of the majority of people uh, in Scotland in the 1560s, as it was in England when Mary Tudor came to the throne. It, you know, the, the fact that the, the belief that people after Henry VIII's Reformation, which was only partly um, Protestant anyhow, uh, could suddenly have all become Catholic within the space, um, Protestant, sorry, within the space of a few years is absolute rubbish. Um, and Catholicism as a religion of the majority of people held on for a long time in England, um, longer even in Scotland. Uh, and so I, I don't think Mary would have been brought up as a Protestant. No, her son was, of course, but things had changed very greatly by that time. She's such a fascinating character in history to me. I always see her as so romantic and tragic. Fun to read about. She is fun to read about and her life is, well, in many respects, both romantic and tragic. I mean, she, she uh, I think, had an enjoyable upbringing in, in France at the court of Henry II of France, uh, who, of course, wanted to put her and his son Francis on the throne of Scotland with a view to... Uh, uh, using Mary's legitimate claim to the throne of England to get England under his control as well. He was, of course, thwarted by his own death and then by the death of his, his son shortly afterwards. Uh, but I, I, I think um, it's partly movies and, and um, historical novels which have romanticised Mary uh, a great deal. I mean, the, the current um, movie about Mary, Queen of Scots, at least doesn't romanticise the Bothwell thing. I mean, it, I think it dealt with that quite well, that this was not something Mary wanted at all. Um, but I, I found it rather odd to watch in that she seems to go from being this strong, empowered woman to a virtually, you know, a, a gibbering idiot unable to do anything for herself in the space of about five or ten minutes in the film. <laughs> and I, I, I do find that quite strange. I think there's also the the constant contrast with, with Elizabeth, um, which puts Mary at a disadvantage, which may not be entirely justified. Um, it's all very well to criticise Mary for marrying um, Darnley um, and subsequently Bothwell, which, as I said, she might not have had a great deal of choice in. Um, but it made a lot of sense dynastically to marry Darnley. He had a, a himself, um, through his mother, a claim to the English throne. Uh, and and it, it made a lot of sense politically. And how how much she was really enamoured of him, again, I, I, I think we don't really know. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, we are guilty of, I think, in, in looking at the past is assuming that all of these, um, uh, we know about these relationships. We, we don't know very much about the personal relationships of these monarchs. Um, we don't really know how they got along. I mean, clearly, Darnley had all sorts of problems. He was in ill health. He probably picked up syphilis in France. He drank far too much. And he could not see a way to forging a role for himself in Scotland. But uh, I think it's because of the drama of Mary's reign. You know, the, the uh, secretary, David Rizzio, being dragged out and stabbed 50 times in the outer chamber. And if, if you ever go to Holyrood House and you see the little dining room in which the beginnings of this incident took place, you will see how claustrophobic and frightening it, it must have been. I, I was quite astonished by it when I saw it. Uh, so I, I, I think... Mary, you know, she has become Mary Queen of Scots, uh, uh, a prominent figure in, in literature, um, both in, in England and, and overseas, of course, as well. Um, uh, the German Friedrich Schiller wrote about a play about her. Uh, she, she lends herself well to historical fiction, um, and the rivalry with Elizabeth is an interesting one. Uh, so I, I think that's why she has such a, a hold on on people's um, interest, uh, and and her life was very very sad. I and mean, she 
she did make a gross error of judgment in coming to England in 1568. If she had stayed in Scotland after the Battle of Langside and perhaps tried to regroup her troops uh, and her supporters, uh, she might have succeeded. But as you said, Rebecca, people, you know, the what if school of history <laughs> is not terribly profitable, really. Um, she trusted her cousin Elizabeth to treat her fairly, uh, without thinking through at all, I think, how she would have felt if the situation had been reversed and Elizabeth had suddenly turned up in Scotland, um, uh, you, you know, wanting um, succour and assistance. They were different religions. Um, they they had certain things in common, not, not least of which was, of course, that they were distantly related. Uh, but Elizabeth was more wary and perhaps more fortunate than, than Mary, Queen of Scots. I mean, no one ever tried to, to kidnap and force Elizabeth into marriage. You have to bear in mind, however, that contemporaries would not have seen Mary's marriages as... as they might have thought the choice was ill-advised, but marriage itself was not. I mean, for the first decade of Elizabeth's reign, her... Uh, her advisors nearly went mad trying to get her to marry. You know, I mean, it was not right for a, a female monarch. And what was going to happen to the succession? And indeed, you know, this was a riddle that Elizabeth never cared to solve during her lifetime. Sometimes I think pe people forget that Mary, Queen of Scots, was a Stuart because we most often associate her with the Tudors because of Queen Elizabeth. The Stuarts, in my opinion, are almost or me maybe equally as exciting as, as the Tudors. In now, you respects they're more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and they certainly are more dramatic. I mean, Scotland um, was a small country on the fringes of Europe, um, as was England, to, to be truthful. You know, our view of our glorious imperial past in this country uh, would have caused um, people in France, Spain and most of the rest of Europe to fall about laughing at the time if they'd known nobody spoke English after all, uh, except within England itself. Uh, but I, I think the, the, the Stuarts have a very um, violent and blood-spotted history and they, they also have some very much larger-than-life um, kings amongst them. Uh, and uh, certainly James IV and James, James V in particular is not well known, um, probably even in Scotland, let alone outside it. But he, he was, a, his, as Mary's father, he was an interesting monarch. And they, uh, I, it's just such a, a dramatic and compelling history. And of course, um, despite the best efforts of Henry VIII, the Stuarts won in the end. <laughs> it was James VI and first who came south in 1603 to, to claim the throne. Um, a, a notable victory for little Margaret Tudor, who, of course, went reluctantly north as a 13-year-old to marry a man more than twice her age, and having had numerous pregnancies, eventually bore him a son who survived. Uh, and it is her line, um, as her own father had foreseen as a possibility, uh, that, that eventually combined the, the Tudor and Stuart crown. So, yes, you're right. I, I think it is a shame more people don't, don't know and have an interest in, in Scottish history uh, because it, its fascination is, is really equal to that of the Tudors at, at the time. You're quite right. And then your next book was Royal Renegades, which was about the English Civil Wars and the children of the first executed king, Charles I, which they definitely interest me. So if you enjoy the drama of the Tudors, you won't be disappointed <laughs> in Charles I and his children, will you? <laughs> no, you won't. Um, but it raises the interesting question of why the Stuarts have never attracted the interest of, of um, uh, read, uh, people who read history nearly as much as the Tudors, and, um, and indeed why they don't anymore, because they, I mean, the Civil War is the fulcrum of, of, of English and British history, really. It, it is what forged um, the, the nation that we would become, um, much more so than Elizabeth and Francis Drayton's explorations and things of that sort. Uh, the, the, um, the Stuart monarchs just don't seem to have quite the glamour, if that's the right word, um, with the possible exception of Charles II of, of the Tudors. But I don't think Edward VI and Mary were, well, Mary would have liked to have been glamorous, and certainly in her choice of clothing she probably was. But Henry VII, who's also often overlooked as the, as the first Tudor, is also a very interesting man. Why the Stuarts um, 
haven't attracted as much attention, I don't know. I think it's partly because people regard the Civil War as difficult, in inverted commas. You know, there are, there are a flood of ideas. Um, there, are, uh, there is the dethronement and execution of a king. Again, I think if you stopped a lot of people in the street here in, in England and say, did you know that between 15, um, sorry, 16, uh, 1649 and 1660, England was a republic, they'd probably go, no way. Because, you know, being Republican is thought to be deeply improper in a monarchy after all, but but it was a republic and a very successful one for a while as well, much admired in Europe. Um, I, I, I suppose it, it, it's because the Civil War looms so large and not everyone likes battles, though I actually love reading and writing about battles. Uh, and, and uh, it, you know, the, the beginning of ideas which lead to sort of modern views of democracy isn't the right word, but, you know, extension of, of who could vote, um, much greater broadening of uh, religious ideas and tolerance. I, I think, you know, if you try and, and get people interested in that, they go, no, nah, I'd rather hear about Anne Boleyn. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is rather sad, um, but but the seventeenth the, the century, particularly the civil wars, are not even taught in schools here very much anymore. You you can do it in your last couple of years at high school, but you know only some schools offer it, um, which is to deny our history, I think, very much. But uh, and also you, you do have some interesting monarchs. I mean, whether you like Charles the First and his wife Henrietta Maria or not, um, they are interesting people. Uh, and Charles II, whom incidentally I like most people who write about him, you you get to like least the more you write about him. Um, he is also very interesting. Uh, and eventually you go off into, you know, two final Stuart queens, Queen Mary II and Queen Anne. But they're not women who, who have attracted a great deal of attention either. And and I I, I think it's, it's rather sad. Um, but the one monarch, as you know, who, who does still attract a certain amount of attention is Charles II. Uh, and it's partly because of all these women I've just been writing about, his mistresses. I want to get into that, but I have to talk about the children of Charles I. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> there it, yes. there's, I have to say the portrait by, by Van Dyke of the five children of Charles I is one of my favorites and what really drew me into wanting to learn more about them. How did their father's execution affect their lives? Um, well, one of the children in that portrait, the baby, Anne, was dead by then. Um, so she was at least out of it. She's the chubby looking one. In fact, she was chubby but unhealthy. She died of TB. Um, the, uh, it, it was a family absolutely divided, as you probably know, in geography, in religion, in, in, in attitude and outlook. Um, by the time that Charles the Second, Charles the First was executed, the two elder sons, Charles and James, were with their mother in Paris, uh, where she was living very much as the poor and sort of barely tolerated relation of her her Bourbon family there. Um, Elizabeth and Henry uh, were still in England, um, the youngest of all the children, um, who becomes Minette, Princess Henrietta, she was, had, had also um, been spirited out of uh, England by the time that Charles I was executed and was brought up entirely as a Catholic by her mother, though her father had given strict instruction she was to be raised as a Protestant. So you have just Henry and Elizabeth. Um, uh, Henry was born in 1640, Elizabeth in 1635, so they're quite young still, left in uh, England essentially as hostages. So that's rather a pejorative term. Um, uh, and the fact that their parents had gone down river um, without them when they escaped in, in uh, the beginning of the Civil War is, is often viewed by people as quite extraordinary, but of course children had separate households. And Princess Mary was married long since 
at the time of her father's execution and was living unhappily in the United Provinces of the Netherlands. So you only have Henry and Elizabeth, who are both brought up as Protestants in, in living in England. At the time of their father's execution, they were under the wardship, the guardianship of uh, the Earl of Northumberland, who was one of the great grandees. He was also a supporter of Parliament, incidentally. Um, and though he may not, I think he probably had misgivings about Charles's execution, but he didn't oppose it. Um, as you probably know, there were a number of the nobles who, who opposed the king uh, and the way he had tried to govern, and Northumberland was one of them. And Elizabeth and Henry were brought up in his household with his own children. So was James for a while before he managed to escape and slip away, if not with Northumberland's connivance, at least perhaps with some relief when he'd finally gone. <clears throat> but one of the things I did discover in writing about the children of Charles I um, was how responsible a guardian Northumberland was and how much of his personal money he'd had to expend in supporting them because Parliament was rather dilatory and mean in, in um, voting money for them and in, in um, Northumberland's expenses, which are in the West Sussex Record Office, there are um, details down to, to you know, bootlaces and what their servants were because he had to look after them as royalty so they had to have carriages, footmen, servants, you, you know, all this kind of thing. And it cost him money, which he, he was never able to recover. Uh, so you have three children who are brought up as Protestant, Mary in the Netherlands, Henry and Elizabeth in uh, England. James, uh, well, Charles and James, of course, were both brought up as Protestant. Uh, James was the first to... <sighs> Uh, leave the Protestant religion. I mean, Charles only converted on his deathbed, but I don't think he'd been a very dutiful Protestant or even very dutiful religiously for much of his life. But they, so the, the children have quite different tra trajectories, uh, uh, which are very sad because, of course, by the time Charles II comes to the throne, only he and James and briefly Henry and Mary are left alive. Henry and Mary both died of smallpox within six months of, of the restoration of Charles II, uh, leaving him greatly upset. Uh, and Minette, meanwhile, uh, is being brought up and has had her name changed to Henriette Anne uh, in, in, uh, in Paris uh, and was viewed with sort of condescension by most of her relatives there until, of course, her brother, uh, was re restored, whereupon she became suddenly very marriageable. Uh, and she married the uh, uh, brother of Louis XIV, his only brother, Philippe, Duke of Orléans, um, who himself had had an absolutely miserable childhood uh, as the spare and been sort of brought up and dressed in girls' clothing for quite a long time. And he used to say this had rather a profound effect upon the poor man. Uh, and his, his marriage to Minette was absolutely awful. I mean, he, his way of dealing with her, he had a male lover. But his way of trying to cope with her was to keep her constantly pregnant. And she had numerous pregnancies. Um, eventually, only two daughters survived, one of whom went on to become Queen of Spain. The other married into the Savoy family. And it is her descendants, Anne-Marie uh, of Savoy, who um, uh, now have a claim to both the French and the English throne. And, and, and they've said that they won't pursue it in either case. But so uh, the, the youngest child, Princess Henrietta, it is, it is her descendants who um, have survived really longest. Um, the others have sort of died out at various points. But I, I think the effect of their disordered um, childhood had a profound effect on all of the children, uh, not least Charles II and his brother James II. I'm going to move on to Charles II now because I know you've been anxiously awaiting <laughs> me to talk about him. But he is next book, which is coming out in April. <laughs> yeah, he is known for his many mistresses, and it's strangely one of the things that draws me to his story. How many did he actually have? Um, I don't think we know absolutely for sure. Um, I mean, I write about uh, five or six of them in my book, um, one of whom... Francis Theresa Stuart almost certainly wasn't actually ever physically his mistress, though he pursued her with a, a, an intemperate ardour, which is quite unseemly and sort of a bit 
a bit disturbing for the Me Too generation, actually, but perhaps we won't go there. Um, however, it's worth um, reading about, I think. Uh, there were also a few others. So while I talk about six of these women plus his wife in the book, there, there were, well, there was certainly um, uh, Mole Davis, the actress, and a couple of other women. Uh, uh, and there were uh, women in Paris uh, as well when he was there as a, as a prince. Uh, so I would say um, that, that probably there are about nine or ten of them in total. But, but because, you know, we, we can't be certain about his relationships with some of them, there are certainly eight or nine. And subsequently, there were illegitimate children produced from these affairs. There were 14 of them, which is quite a good tally. <laughs> that is a lot of illegitimate it, children. Of illegitimate children, yes. It, it has to be said, however, for Charles, that he was quite a, a responsible father. I think he was a more responsible parent than some of the children's mothers, uh, most notably the ghastly Barbara Palmer, Countess of Castlemaine. Um, but he, he was quite fond of most of his offspring and did um, duly give all of them titles. Uh, and many of them were, well, Barbara Palmer's children became dukes. Um, and the, the, the girls were all given, you know, good marriages and, 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 and good husbands. Uh, uh, and I think it's one of the conundrums about Charles II. You know, why did he uh, so ostentatiously display these children? Uh, and the view of a number of historians is that, um, it, you know, his wife couldn't have children. She had a couple of pregnancies, but then, you know, the, it seems to have been hopeless. And she had various gynecological problems, which probably predisposed poor Catherine of Braganza not to be able to carry children to term. Uh, but the, um, the, the view now is that he, he saw this as part of his masculinity. And it really didn't matter that he hadn't had any children with his queen. Uh, all you had to, to look at were all of these, you know, more than a dozen others. And it's, it's a sign of his virility and therefore his power as a monarch. Uh, and to us, it might seem quite curious. And of course, later centuries, notably the Victorians, would have been desperately embarrassed and tried to hide them all. Um, but one of the interesting things about the restorations, restoration, of course, is that not just Charles, but the, the women he consorted with never really sought to hide what they were doing. Uh, and uh, it, it, he was not, despite the, the epithet, the merry monarch and the fact that, you know, a lot of people for many centuries have sort of thought, I mean, he was a bit naughty, but sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, he was one of us. Uh, I mean, was he hell? Uh, Charles held most ordinary people in complete contempt um, and had very little to do with them. He, unlike his Stuart forebears in Scotland, who very much went out and about and allowed people to touch them and met them and talk to them, Charles II generally tried to stay away from them as much as possible. Uh, but but the, the mistresses are almost, uh, how to put it? You know, for a man who can't, um, with his wife, produce any offspring of his own, they still speak to his power as a man, I think. Uh, I think that's an important thing to remember about him. Well, now I'm curious, were there any complications that arose from his mistresses and illegitimate children? Well, yes, there was one rather big com com complication, and that was um, James, Duke of Monmouth, who was the... Uh, uh, only child of his first liaison, a very brief liaison with the Welsh good time girl, Lucy Walter. They met as 18-year-olds when Charles was um, in exile uh, in The Hague and had what seems to have been really quite a brief fling um, from which was produced this son, whom Charles acknowledged. Um, but Lucy was a very difficult uh, woman uh, and um, had extremely poor judgment. Uh, and she she uh, seems to have wanted more from Charles and he never remotely considered marrying her. She wasn't from the right kind of background at all. Uh, and for a while, he took only the most sort of 
perfunctory of interest in her son. And she tried to use this boy, who was a very pretty boy, incidentally, very good, I mean, he grew into a very good looking man, uh, as a kind of bargaining chip to get more money out of Charles. And eventually her, her own shenanigans, she kept on taking different lovers. She was accused of trying to murder one of them. Um, she, her her behaviour so um, incensed Charles that he, he had her pretty much silenced um, and reduced the amount of money she was given. And she died a lonely and sad death in, in Paris um, before he even, before Charles even came to the throne. But, and, and young James, their son, was put in charge of, um, a, a, you know, a, a faithful member of the lower nobility and brought up. And eventually his grandmother, Henrietta Maria, took an interest in him and brought him back to England with her after Charles was restored. Uh, and he became very much the apple of his father's eye um, and was given titles, money, married off to the most uh, important heiress in Scotland, Anna Scott, um, the daughter of the, the Duke of Buccleuch. Uh, and uh, theirs was not a happy marriage either. This is a period littered with unhappy marriages, I'm afraid. Uh, and... Uh, uh, as he grew up, James had been brought up, James Duke of Monmouth, as a Protestant. Um, and he he became involved in the whole exclusion crisis of the late 1670s, early 1680s, in which moves were made to try and keep James, Duke of York, who would become James II off the throne. Uh, and it was uh, thought that, you know, they would try and put this illegitimate son on the throne. Um, although Charles had a perfectly legitimate uh, Protestant nephew in William III of Orange, who would become William III of England eventually. Uh, but um, the, the, the difficulties that um, Monmouth presented caused his father to send him away, to send him overseas. Um, he was even involved in the early 1680s in a, a plot to assassinate his, his father, or appears to have been. I mean, he managed to wriggle out of it, and his father forgave him. Um, so he is the one illegitimate child who caused a great deal of trouble. The others were much more peaceable. You know, they accepted good marriages, financial support, um, being acknowledged by their father. Um, but James, because James Duke of Monmouth, because he was the eldest of them all, and because there was a uh, uh, some doubt as to whether Charles had ever contracted a legal marriage with Lucy Walter, which few people now think was actually the case. Uh, I mean, it, it may be that there are documents still lurking around in various places which might prove this conclusively, but um, Charles eventually published um, a, a complete re you know, rebuttal of the fact that he had ever married Lucy Walter. Um, and he was, um, well, like Henry VIII, I suppose, to a degree, he was a a monarch um, who had a great deal of respect for the legitimate line. And he never seems to have harboured any serious thoughts of making James Duke of Monmouth his, his legitimate heir. He didn't like his brother James very, his brother James Duke of York very much, but he was determined that he would um, pass the throne on to him. And indeed he did, with disastrous consequences. But um, that is another story. Linda, as a historian and author, you generally have an idea before you begin your research and writing what the topic of the book or what the theme is. What is the story, so to speak, that you're trying to get across with your new book? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think uh, I didn't have a very clear idea when I started, because to be honest, it wasn't the book I had wanted to write. I wanted to follow the book on the children of Charles I with the book on the family and friends of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, but it was not thought to be insufficient. It was thought to be insufficiently commercial. And one has to follow what one's publisher says. So I thought, oh, OK. Um, I had spoken to various people and they said, oh, we're very interested in Charles II and his mistresses. So I thought, OK, I'll write a book on that. Uh, and I, I actually got more interested in it as I went along. Um, I think one of the things that it, it, it proves um, is that the roles of women were changing, particularly after the civil wars in, in England, which had um, given women much more prominence. And it's still an intensely patriarchal society, but certainly Restoration England is also a society where 
well-born women, um, like Barbara Palmer, like the Duke of Buckingham's mistress, the Countess of Shrewsbury, don't actually give a damn uh, for what people think about them, for how they behave. Um, and, and that is, well, it's not an advance in some ways, but it, it's certainly a change over, over what had gone before. And what I discovered in writing the book about the, the mistresses um, is that, you know, many of these women were quite clever. Um, Frances Theresa Stewart came to Charles II's court as a 15-year-old, sent over by his sister, Minette, with the um, sort of almost round-her-neck uh, description of the prettiest girl in the world, which wasn't perhaps a very responsible thing to do, knowing her brother's predilections. And for four or five years, she resisted his every attempt to get her into bed, um, despite having to put up with a lot of sort of public pawing and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, and eventually, in desperation, uh, she married the um, the Duke of Richmond, um, much to Charles's displeasure, and became a quite competent businesswoman. It was a happy marriage, unlike some of the others, unless her... Her husband died while uh, ambassador to uh, to Copenhagen to to, to Denmark, uh, and she lived on um, into the early 18th century. She attended the coronation of Queen Anne, uh, and when she died, she she left her money to her Scottish cousins because, as you can tell from the surname, she was a Stuart too, but a very very distant relation one to, to Charles II. Uh, and and endowed the improvement and extension of what is one of um, the most beautiful houses in in the border which borders which was given the name Lennox Love, uh, and you know this girl who's viewed as a giggly, empty-headed little idiot when she first comes across, is actually quite a shrewd cookie, and I think that applies to to quite a few of the mistresses. The other thing I would say that I discovered, well. Perhaps I sort of knew it, but it kind of reinforced it. Is that the only one of Charles's mistresses that most people have ever heard of is Nell Gwynn? Uh, you know, it's the little orange girl, the actress who ended up in the king's bed, blah blah blah. Um, perhaps because we like actresses, I don't know. Uh, but in many respects, she is one of the least significant. And Charles never gave her a title, though he did, did give titles to her two sons. Um, she wasn't uh, very interested in the politics of the time. She didn't attempt to be very much of an influencer, like, for example, Louise de, de Carolal, the Duchess of Portsmouth, did. Um, she has a very interesting background as an actress um, when the stage was only just opened up to women. Um, but she's the only mistress that most people would tell you of if you asked them. And, and if you look at her in comparison with the others, she actually isn't all that significant. And I, I did find that interesting. Well, now we come to the end of the show and the five questions I like to ask my guests. Right. If I could offer you a time machine and you could safely travel back in time to observe a place in time, when would you choose? I think I would choose, and this may surprise you, what both of my history professors many years ago when I was a student at the University of York chose as the place they would most like to go back to. And that is Philadelphia in the 1760s, before the um, uh, loss of the colonies uh, it was a time when there was a great deal of um, interest in ideas. You know, Benjamin Franklin was becoming um, more prominent. Um, I, I think in terms of society and ideas, it would have been a fascinating place to be. I think I already know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Which of the six wives of Henry VIII is your favorite? Catherine Parr. <laughs> and you may have answered this next one Um earlier on, um, but what are you currently reading? Um, I, I answered what I was currently reading because I was writing, I was reading a, a book on Mary and Philip's marriage for, for review, um, for the literary review here, and I, I've just submitted my review. Um, beyond that, what I am currently reading are um, uh, books uh, for my what, what background, you know, from what I hope will be my next book. Um, I, I have to work on the proposal again a bit. Um, but I, what I want my next book to be is a book to call, called To Kill a Queen, The Last Days of Marie Antoinette. 
um, which will finally take me back to the French Revolution. <laughs> I've been trying for years and years. It's what I did my doctoral thesis on. Um, and so I've been reading um, uh, a couple of wonderful books um, in French, um, which uh, came out in recent years. One is um, called to, to, to Judge the Queen, uh, and it is about the Queen's trial, though it does range much uh, uh, wider than that, by the French historian Emmanuel de Warisquiel. And the other is a book about the royal family and their imprisonment in the, in the, in the temple, the, the, the temple, the, the, the prison that they only the daughter, Marie-Thérèse, uh, emerged from alive. Um, and it is incredibly moving and sobering uh, and will, uh, I hope, be a very important source. So I am reading at the moment um, on the French Revolution. The last book I read was actually Alexander Sampson's book, uh, Mary and Philip, The Marriage of Tudor England and Habsburg Spain. The next question I have is the one that usually stumps my guests, so I'm going to apologize in advance. What is something that people might be surprised to learn about you? That I've reinvented myself several times. I started out, um, as I alluded to to begin with, as an assistant and then associate professor of history in New York, um, having uh, done most of the, I'd done all the research on my doctoral thesis in Paris and London. And I, I'd, um, I was given the opportunity to go to New York to teach uh, at Lehman College up in the Bronx, actually, for, for, for a year. And the money was good, and it was an opportunity I didn't want to refuse, and I finished writing my doctorate while I was there. And I taught for nearly 10 years in various universities in New York. And then um, I think both my husband and myself were dissatisfied with our um, jobs there, which we didn't think were going anywhere. And we had a, a four-year-old daughter and we couldn't possibly afford to put through private school in New York. And I know things have changed a lot there now, but going to public school in New York then probably have taught her how to handle herself on the street fairly well, but I wasn't really convinced that it would have given her the best education. So we decided to come back, um, in his case, to come over, because my husband had not lived here before, to the UK. And because I needed to work, um, I left the academic world altogether uh, and worked for, as I said, over 20 years uh, in corporate communications for, for British Telecom. And when I'd had enough of that, I reinvented myself again by going back to being a historian. And I, I, that probably is, it, it's a fairly unusual trajectory, I think. And lastly, um, Mistress's Sex and Scandal at the Court of Charles II, I believe you said, is, is out in April? It is, on April the 16th, over here. It doesn't have an American publisher, sadly, um, because for reasons which I would find quite strange, people tell myself and my agent that Americans are not interested in Charles II. So That's rubbish. Uh, yes, I, I know it is, Rebecca, I know that. Um, but what I would say is that it's perfectly obtainable for over Amazon and that um, given the standard of production and printing and reproduction that my American um, publisher used to do, uh, you will um, uh, probably be pleased to part with a bit more money for the postage to get a halfway decent looking book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be sure to um, let everybody know when it's out and put out links so that they can purchase it. Um, are all your other books available on Amazon for them to look at? They are. Yes, they, 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 they all are. Yeah. Well, Linda, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Rebecca. I've greatly enjoyed it. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.